We are in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 25, if you want to open your Bibles there. High schoolers, junior hires, you are dismissed. 1 Samuel chapter 25, if you're with us two weeks ago, we uh, began this chapter and we focused on finishing well. Finishing well. We looked at Samuel, a man who finished well. We looked at Nabal, a man who finished as a fool. And we looked at David, a man whose finished was jeopardized by his flesh. And we're going to continue now today uh, in 1 Samuel chapter 25, pick it up in verse 14. And what we're going to see today, we're going to look at how our daily choices influence how we finish. How our daily choices matter. The title of the message is The Choices We Make. And by way of introduction, you know, 24 years ago, actually this month, I had a very difficult choice to make. I was, at the time, uh, employed as a, as a firefighter paramedic, and we were dispatched to the Lake Elsinore Courthouse, and there had been, tragically, a shooting inside the courthouse. And so when we arrived, we were told that we had one patient, and going in, found a gal, 26-year-old gal, 28-year-old gal, um, who had been shot multiple times. And she, when we arrived, was pulseless and non-breathing. They were doing CPR on her. And we began fervent efforts to save this woman's life. We started a couple large bore IVs on her, opened them up wide open. We intubated her, stuck a tube into her trachea to breathe for her and and all, and began to to just, you know, obviously stem the bleeding as best you can and so on. And so we're working hard, fervishly, to, to, to resuscitate this gal. We're pushing, you know, epinephrine and so on, drugs to stimulate her heart. And we actually got a heart rhythm back and intermittently got some pulses going on. So we're thinking, okay, th- you know, we might be able to resuscitate this gal. Uh, the guys had called an airship for us to transport her, but, you know, the, it just wasn't going to work. It was going to actually extend, uh, ironically, the, the airship getting her to the hospital. And so we're like, we canceled the, the, the helicopter. We're like, we just, we're going to scoop and run, get her on in the ambulance as quick as we can. Well, about this time, we're told that there's a second victim. And so we go and we find that the second victim was actually her nine-year-old daughter. And, and sadly, her nine-year-old daughter was also pulseless and non-breathing and had more wounds than, than her mom had. Now, at that point in time, I had a very difficult decision to make. I had to make a choice. Uh, it's called triage. You're triaging a situation. Triage is a French word. It means to sort. And the idea of triage is you do the most good for the most number of people. So I, I have this gal, and now I'm quickly, I'm, I'm, I have to figure out, we don't know exactly how long, you know, she's been down, pulseless and non-breathing. We know she was shot at the same time her mom was, and at the time we were probably, you know, 10 minutes on scene, probably happened about, took us about 10 minutes to get there. So, you know, this whole event is maybe now 20, 25 minutes old um, at a minimum. And so now I'm going, okay, well, uh, what am I going to do? And you, you say, well, gosh, you, you work up the, the, the daughter. Well, it's not that easy because you, you have limited resources. And so you got to decide, you know, I, am I going to delay transport for this mom? You have in trauma what's called a golden hour. And so you, you got to get moving, man. You, got the, the, you, get, you get them to the hospital as quick as you can. And so now I go, okay, well, if I, if I start treating the little girl, 
then I'm going to delay transport for the mom who has a fighting chance. And chances are this girl has been pulseless and non-breathing for at least 20 minutes. Uh, brain damage starts to set in after your brain goes without oxygen for, you know, six, seven minutes. Uh, you're considered brain dead after 10 minutes. So, so I'm factoring all this together. And the idea of triage is great, but unfortunately, sometimes you have to make the best of two bad decisions. You, know, you really don't have any good decisions. And this was kind of the case here because I'm like, on the one hand, I could say, well, I'm going to work both of them up, which is a bad decision because now I'm delaying transport for the mom and I'm p- placing them both, you know, at, at perilous risk. The other decision is I'm pronouncing her dead and I'm just focusing on the mom. Both are, are really, you know, lousy decisions to make. So I made the best of a bad decision, and that is we had to pronounce the little girl dead. We pronounced her dead. We didn't work her up. We, began, we focused all of our efforts on treating mom and transferring her and transporting her. Again, no-win situation. Well, I use this by way of introduction because in the situation that we find Abigail in here in 1 Samuel chapter 25... She is in a no-win situation. She's, she's got to decide between, really, uh, you know, two choices. She's, she's in a, a position where she has to triage. Is she going to honor her husband, or is she going to, or is she going to save her household? So we pick it up, uh, chapter 25, verse 14, where we left off. It says, Now one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, saying, Look, David sent messengers from the wilderness to greet our master, And he reviled them. If you'll recall, what had happened was David was there in the wilderness and they and their men had been watching over Nabal's flocks. Nabal is this man who's very wealthy. He's got thousands of sheep. Uh, In this day and age, you were considered wealthy. If you had 10 sheep, he has 3,000 of them. Man that's very, very well off. And so he has his shepherds out in the wilderness. They're watching the sheep. David and his men out in the wilderness. And they're keeping watch over these guys. It was not uncommon in those days that, you know, there were people that would rob you blind. And so, and probably kill the shepherds and take the whole flock for themselves. So they're, they're, you know, they're exposed there. They're at risk. Well, David and his men, they, they blocked. They were like a wall to these guys. That's what this guy's going to say in a minute. They protected them. They watched out for them. And so now the day of shearing comes where, you know, for a, for a sheep herder, this is like harvest time for a farmer. This is payday. And so payday comes. They're going to take their flock. They're going to shear all the, the sheep. And David sends messengers to Nabal to say, hey, listen, we, we totally took care of you guys. We defended you. The whole reason that you've got payday is because we were there. You didn't lose a single sheep. None of your guys was hurt. And so, listen, for our part, we're just saying, could you give us a little something for the effort? You know, could you, could you help us out? Because we, we could use it right now. So whatever God lays on your heart to give us, hey, why don't you give us? And Nabal's response was to say, I don't know who you are. Who are you? You ain't got nothing coming. And so he, and, and worse than that, he called David names and so on. He, he was horrible to them. And so this is what the servant is now telling Nabal's wife this. And, and he says in verse 15, but the men were very good to us and we were not hurt nor did we miss anything as long as we accompanied them when we were in the fields. They were a wall to us both by day and night. 
All the time we were with them, keeping the sheep. And now, therefore, he says to Abigail, know and consider what you will do, for harm is determined against our master and against all his household, for he is such a scoundrel that one cannot talk to him. They say, look, Nabal is, is he's horrible. You can't reason with this guy. And <clears throat> he was so bad to David, David's going to come and he's going to kill us all. Now Abigail's got a difficult situation to make. She's got to triage the situation. Am I going to honor my husband or am I going to save my household? So we continue now, verse 18. And so uh, moving on, if I can find my place here. It says, Then Abigail made haste and took 200 loaves of bread, two skins of wine, five sheep already dressed, five seahs of roasted grain, 100 clusters of raisins, and 200 cakes of figs, and she loaded them on donkeys. Now, this is all readily available. It's not like she said, hey, listen, I got to go borrow some money. I got to go take out a loan. I got to go, you know, round up some supplies. There are no, these are all readily on hand. In other words, Nabal, when he was asked... He had more than enough to help these guys out. This is the stuff that's there at the house. I mean, he hasn't even gotten to payday. And all of this stuff is just readily available. He well could have helped. And so, and he didn't. So she gathers all these things up. Verse 19, and she said to her servants, go on before me. See, I am coming after you. But she did not tell her husband uh, Nabal. And so it was. As she rode on the donkey that she went down under cover of the hill, and there were David and his men coming down toward her, and she met them. And now David had said, Surely in vain I have protected all that this fellow has in the wilderness, so that nothing was missing of all that belongs to him, and he has repaid me evil for good. May God do so, and more also to the enemies of David, if I leave one male of all who belong to him by morning light. This is God's way of showing us into David's heart, into David's mind, this is what's going on with David. He's ba- so... There's, there, it's unmistakable. He's already said to all of his guys, hey, get your swords on, everybody ready for battle. We're, we're, we're going to go take care of this guy. But now you see the murderous intent of his heart. So this is the situation. This is, is what's going on there with him. Verse, so you know, he says there in verse 22, may God do so and more to the enemies of David if I leave one male of all who belong to him by morning light. So he is, is really upset. Now, if you're keeping score at this point, what I want you to understand is that everybody here in this story has choices to make. Everyone has choices to make. Abigail has to choose between honoring her husband and saving her household. Nabal has to choose between pleasing God and pleasing his flesh. And David has to choose between acting in faith and trusting God or by reacting in the flesh and committing murder, right? So everybody here has a choice to make. Now, I want to focus on Nabal for a minute. For Nabal, it would seem that his life was defined by repeated choices to gratify his flesh. Nabal, we've already read, he's been harsh and evil in his doings, that he's an ungrateful man, that he's profoundly self-focused. In fact, what we saw last week when we were going through it is that he suffered from an eye infection. 
You know, you read through when David asked him, hey, how about, how about giving us a little something? He's like, should I take my things and give them to, to somebody that I don't know and my food for my, he's I, me, my, you know, and, and Nabal, he was in love with three people, really, me, myself, and I. And so his whole life rotated around that. Nabal was a guy who absolutely focused on pleasing his flesh, absolutely was driven by him. He was his God. And so this temptation to gratify the flesh, we need to understand that this is something that we all struggle with. And there is a a host of enemies that every single one of us face when we are faced with the temptation, am I going to worship God or am I going to worship myself? Now the first enemy that we face uh, is, is the world system. The world system, the world in which we live in, wants to press you into its mold. Uh, Paul put it this way to the Romans. He said, do not be conformed to this world. That phrase literally means don't let the world press you into its mold. That's the way the world wants to, to, to treat you. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And so that's the first force that's at work in your life and in my life is the, the world system that wants to press you into its mold. And we have examples of that throughout our life. We live in and you can see how the world wants to, to have you conform to it and puts all the pressures on you in that way. Well, not only does the world work against us, but your flesh works against you as well. You have within you, within your, yourself, that your flesh... The Bible says we're all born into sin, and the the natural inclination of every person in the world is to be selfish and self-centered. You know, James, in the book of James, he says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? He says, well, don't they come from your desires that battle within? The idea is your selfish desires. That all of us have this natural tendency to be self-centered and self-focused. Again, Paul, writing to the Galatians, he said, he put it this way, he said, For the flesh lusts against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish. Again, if you were here a couple of weeks ago, we, we looked at and, and talked about how this is just the natural condition of man. Now, if you talk to psychologists or psychiatrists, they will tell you that, that man is inherently good and that it's the environment that man is in that, that, that causes him to turn evil. Well, just a basic study of human nature will tell you that that's not the case. Because what happens is if, you, you know, if you've got a two-year-old, you don't have to teach a two-year-old to be selfish and self-centered. You don't have to tell, no, no, wait, wait a minute. Johnny, Johnny, wait a minute. No, say, repeat after me. Say mine. Say mine. And now hit your brother. Now take that thing away from you. You don't have to teach a kid that. It's just the natural thing that comes out. Again, psychiatry will tell you, hey, you're basically good. And you know, if you've got a problem, if you look deep enough within yourself, you're going to find the answers to all your problems. And the Bible says, no, you got it backwards. If you look deep enough within yourself, you're going to find the source of all your problems. Right? And so we have this unholy trinity that works against us. The world that tries to press us into its mold. And then you have your flesh that wants you to satisfy the desires and the lusts of your flesh. And not only that, the third force that's at work against us is a demonic force. 
You have a demonic presence within the world that is seeking to get you to fulfill the lusts of your flesh and to have you be profoundly selfish and self-centered. Paul put it this way to the Ephesians. He said, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. See, the Bible teaches that when Satan sinned against God, rebelled against God, that that he took a third of the angels with him. And so what you have here on the earth is not just Satan's influence tempting people to sin, but you also have a very large demonic presence and, and, and a host of wickedness that is with him. And so you have an army of Satan that's at work in the world to, to tempt you to sin. So you've got the world against you, you've got your own flesh against you, and you've got the demonic forces against you. And all of these are in cahoots, they're all working together. <coughs> and so this unholy trinity wages war against the things of God in our life. Causes us to doubt God, causes us to think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. And ultimately, it, it causes us to trust in ourselves and the things of man and, and not trust in the things of God. Now, keeping that in mind, turn over to Romans chapter 1 with me real quickly. There in the New Testament, Romans chapter 1. And we'll pick it up in verse 18. Here's what it says there. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Again, Romans chapter 1, continuing in verse 19, Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. In other words, what this is saying is that God reveals himself through his creation And it is blatantly clear that there is a God. You just need to study and look good and hard at the world in which we live in. Look at God's creation. And it's plainly obvious that there's a creator. That that all this stuff just doesn't miraculously, magically happen. There is a creator. And and the Bible says right here in Romans chapter 1, it's plain to see. And and so he says... But what Paul, the point Paul is making here is that people refuse to see it. Again, verse 19, because of what may be known of God is manifest to them, for God has shown it to them, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they, speaking of those that reject the plain truth of the fact that there is a God, they are without excuse. Because, verse 21, although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were thankful, but they came futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man, and birds and four-footed animals, and creeping things. The idea here is that the human heart is an idol factory. Not idle like you're sitting around not doing anything. Idle like you're going to worship something. 
And you will worship something. It'll be yourself. It'll be your self-interest. It will be, you know, and it, and it takes on many different forms. It'll be sex. It'll be, you know, recreation, leisure, pleasure, you know, cars, boats, whatever it is. Your heart is an idol factory and you're going to worship something. And this is what Paul is saying here to the Romans is that, look, those that reject God, they worship his creation, but they won't worship him. He says, therefore, verse 24, God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lusts of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves. Now, what I want you to see there, if you'll back up to verse 22, he says, professing to be wise, they became fools. You might, you might want to circle that word fool. Nearby, you could write this, you could write moron. Because that's what it means in the Greek. It's the Greek word moros. We get the word moron from that. You ever felt like a moron? Yeah, yeah, I had a situation years ago. I was at church, and, and we had a deaf ministry. And, um, and so, you know, after I, I had preached the message, there was a, a gal, deaf gal, came up to talk to me through the interpreter. And so through the interpreter, she tells me, oh, I always feel so good at church. I always feel so close to God. I come, and, I, and it's, it's just awesome, and I connect, and God speaks to me. But she says, during the week, you know, the fire starts to go out. And I told her, oh, well, the reason for that is because when you come to church, you're with God's people, and you're in God's word, and you're, you're drawing near to God. The Bible says if you draw near to God, he will draw near to you. So you've got to find ways to draw near to God during the week. I said, do, do, you know, do, just get in, maybe a time of being in God's word during the week. That's, that's one way that you can do this. She said, oh, I have a really difficult time of being in God's word. I don't always understand it. And so, so I tell this gal through her interpreter, I say, there's a great Christian radio station that teaches. <laughs> now, up until this point in time, she's been sign-languaging, you know, the interpreter, and the interpreter would speak. Mid-sentence, she looks at me, she, she actually says, as she emphatically signs, I'm deaf, you know. <laughs> I'm like, I'm a moron, Right? So, <laughs> we, feel like, we feel like morons sometimes. Listen, that might not make me a Mensa candidate, but that doesn't make me a moron, okay? Because, because here's the thing. When, when, when the Bible calls someone a fool, it says, look, you're a moron, not when you do boneheaded things like that. No, the Bible says that you're a moron if you reject God. That's what this says. It says, it says you're, you... You, you're a fool to reject God. And, and, that, and, and he's making that abundantly clear. And, 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 and the, the Bible says, listen, Proverbs 15.5, it says, A fool despises his father's instruction, but he who receives correction is prudent. He's, the Bible says, Proverbs 26.12, Do you see a man wise in his own eyes? There's more hope for a fool than for him. See, the thing is, is that God loves you desperately. And God has within himself everything that you need for life and godliness. And his desire is that none should perish, but that all should come to everlasting life. And he offers to you the opportunity to live an abundant, overcoming life. 
And what happens is so many people reject this over and over and over again. As a matter of fact, turn just over to the right real quickly um, to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Something just that you, you want to see here. Verse 18 tells us, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. Now let me tell you what this says in the Greek, okay? It's an emphatic message in the Greek. The language is powerful. It says the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. And the idea when it says to those who are perishing, it, it's in, it's in, uh, it's in a, a constant tense. And, and, it, and it's, in a, it's in a sense that says you... If you've rejected God, what you are doing on a regular basis is you're killing yourself day by day by day. That's what that means. It means you're perishing. It means every day you're bringing death upon yourself by rejecting God. And, and that death comes in waves. And people live through the experiences and, the, and the, the consequences of death. And so you have the death of relationship. You have the death of, of peace. You have the death of, of, of security, of hope. You have the death of, of, you know, um, of, of self-respect. Uh, you, you, you have all of this constant death that you bring upon yourself. That's what this is saying. But then it goes on to say, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. It's this idea of this, this, the being saved is this daily thing. You either reject God and day by day you kill yourself every day, or you receive Christ and day by day you're being built up, you're being renewed. That's the idea here. Now this is Nabal. He has rejected God. And he's, he's made repeated choices to worship himself. And, and there's a lot of people who live like Nabal. <clears throat> now, when, when it, we read here in 1 Corinthians 18, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. There, there's these two categories of people. There's those who are perishing. There's those who are being saved. Both of these verses, ver- these are verbs written in the active present tense. In other words, this is happening right now, actively as we speak, those who are actively in the process of perishing, those who are actively in the process of being saved. I ask you the question, which one are you? Are you actively day by day bringing death to your life? Or are you actively day by day being saved and renewed by the Lord Jesus Christ? See, the, the, the situation is today you could have newness of life. You can have abundant life. If you came in here burdened, you can be set free. If you came in here ashamed, you can have all your shame and your guilt taken away. The, the, the issue is, is if you came in here today without hope, you can leave here with hope. If you came here today in a, in a place where you feel like God's a million miles away, you can have God take residence in your heart. And it's a matter of saying, am I going to worship myself or am I going to worship God? And listen, before we're done today, I'm going to give you an invitation just to receive, just to say yes to God. And, and, and people stumble on this fact. People are, 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 a lot of times when you, when you preach the gospel, people who are living in bondage, who are day by day killing themselves, say, well, that's just too easy. A message is just too easy. I say, no, it's, it's God who loves you and has offered you a gift. 
It's not unlike, you know, you come and you say, I owe 10 bazillion dollars. And the richest man in the world says, I'll write you a check for that right now. I'll take you out of debt. You're like, well, that's too easy. No, give me the check. I'll take it. God's offering you a check today. I I will set you free. You're either in one category or you're in the other. You're actively being saved or you're actively actively dying. Now, Jesus put it this way in John's gospel. I'm going to turn to John chapter 3. You're welcome to turn there with me. If not, you can just listen. But listen to what Jesus said. He he says this, Nicodemus has come to Jesus. Nicodemus is a member of the, the, the Jewish council, and he comes to Jesus at night. He's like, look, I believe that you're, you know, a prophet come from God. Nobody could do the stuff that you do uh, unless they were sent by God. So what on earth is this message that you're preaching helping you to understand it? So Jesus is in the process of helping Nicodemus to understand who he is and what he's all about. And he says this, we'll pick it up in verse 14. Jesus says to him, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Now you've got to understand a little bit about Jewish history here to understand what Jesus is saying. What had happened when the Jews left bondage of Egypt and they're in the wilderness is that they, all of a sudden these snakes came and they were biting them and they were becoming gravely ill and, and dying. And so what happened was Moses went to God and he said, you know, help. And God said, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take a bronze serpent, stick it, you know, get an image of of a serpent in bronze, stick it on a pole, lift that thing up, and tell the people if they look on this image that they'll be saved. And sure enough, Moses does it, and the people who look on the image, they're saved. Now, Everything in the Old Testament is written to look forward to Jesus Christ. That's the purpose of the Old Testament, to point to Jesus Christ. So that right there is an image of Christ. Bronze is a symbol of judgment in the Bible. Snake is a symbol of sin in the Bible. And so what happens is it's sin being judged, being lifted up on this pole. And the picture is Jesus Christ being lifted up on the cross and, and, and sin being judged. See, because here's what the Bible says. The Bible says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and that the wages of sin is death. And so if you have sinned in your life in any way, shape, or form, and here's how you know if you sin, you have a guilty conscience, okay? The reason why there's that check in our spirit when we've done something wrong and we feel bad, that's God. God shows up. I mean, how do we, you know, people who deny God, it's like, okay, they're denying God, and then someone hits them, and they're like, that was wrong. Well, what's right, what's wrong, if there is no God? What's it within you to say that that's wrong? It's God. And so what happens is you know that, the, you know you've sinned because you have guilt, you have shame, you have, you know, all that's associated with it, and everybody has sinned. And the wages of sin, wages is what you get, what you earn for a job you've done, so you got it coming to you. Hey, I worked a week. I worked 40 hours. Pay me my paycheck. Well, the Bible says what you got, pay me my paycheck for your sin is death. That's what is owed. And so Jesus died on the cross for our sins in our place. He took all of our sins upon himself so that God's righteous standard, his righteous judgment, he's a good God. Because he's good, he has to judge sin. Right? And so, and, and people say, well, why would a good God send people to hell? God doesn't send people to hell. You send yourself there. God loves you so much, he sent his son to die for you so that you didn't have to go to hell. He paid the penalty. 
If you go to hell, it's because you've climbed literally over Jesus' dead body to go there. So God says, I love you, and I've given my son, and he paid the penalty for you. You had the death penalty hanging over your head. He died on the cross for you in your place. And what happened then? He rose again on the third day, conquering Satan's sin and death. And he says to us, listen, that, that atonement is for you. All you have to do is look upon this and say, by faith, I'm going to trust in you for my salvation. This is what Jesus is talking about. He says, when the the Israelites did this in the desert, it was them looking forward to the person and the work of Jesus Christ by faith. God, I'm a sinner and I'm trusting in you. And so this is what happens here. And so he goes on. Verse 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. For God, verse 17, did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. God doesn't want to condemn you, but that the world through him might be saved. Now Jesus goes on, he says, he who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. There's one way to be saved. It's trusting in Jesus Christ and the work that he's done on the cross for you. And you can be saved today by grace through faith. It's not by your works. If I ask you today, how do you know you're going to heaven? And you tell me, well, because, you know, I've helped some old ladies across the street and I'm basically a good guy and I'm not Charles Manson or whatever. I would say, no, no, you're trusting the wrong thing. The answer and the only answer acceptable to God is because Jesus Christ, my Savior, died for me and I'm trusting in Him. He rose again on the third day. I placed my faith in Him. I'm looking to Him. And this is the good news of the gospel. Jesus says, he who believes in Him is not condemned. But he who does not believe, he who is rejected, is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, Jesus says, that the light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. But... He who does the truth comes to the light that his deeds may be clearly seen, that they have been done in God. Now, if you turned to John chapter 3, you might want to circle that word does in verse 21. It means literally to abide. And what Jesus is saying is, listen, if you will trust in me and if you will abide in the truth, in other words, if you will live there, if you will continue there, listen, you're going to be saved. Paul put it this way to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4. He said, take heed to yourself and to the doctrine. Continue in them, for in doing this, you will save both yourself and those who hear you. Again, in 1 Corinthians, he says, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, and in which you stand, by which you are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Here's the idea. Listen. The idea is that true salvation isn't just a confession, it's a conversion. That, that you're going to trust in the Lord and that you're going to live in that. Now, conversion happens the moment you surrender to God and, and, that you, and, and, and it continues until you are, are uh, reunited with Him. The Bible says that He who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. So here's the idea. The idea isn't that you work for your salvation. The idea is that you have to work out your salvation. 
And we don't have time to turn there, but if you look at Ephesians chapter 1 and Ephesians chapter 2, basically what it says there is that God has predestined us to salvation and He's predestined us to good works. I'm going somewhere with this, so track with me. He's predestined us to salvation and He's predestined us to good works. Ephesians chapter 1, Ephesians chapter 2, you can read about it. Now, what that means is that God desires that none should perish, but all that should have everlasting life. He's given Jesus Christ, and when we come to faith in Christ, He wants us to start living it out, right? We've talked about this before. You have the moment when you're saved, and then you have your entire life, and then you have the moment when you go to be with the Lord. And a lot of people, their testimony is, I'm saved, I'm going to heaven, Okay, great, but what about the rest of your life as a Christian? If it was just about being saved and going to heaven, it would be, you know, Jesus, I receive you as Lord and Savior, and everybody out of the pool, you'd be gone, right? God leaves you here. Why does he leave you here? Because he kind of work he wants to do in you and through you, right? And so this is the idea here that you, you're supposed to abide in Christ, live it out. Now, here's where I'm going with this. This brings us to David, because David has a choice to make as well. Nabal has made the choice I'm going to reject God and I'm going to live for myself and I'm going to spend all my money on myself, all my time on myself. And he dies a lonely man and he dies a, a man who had everything in the world. And guess what? You, you don't take it with you. You can't take it with you. There's not a U-Haul behind a hearse, you know? It's like you, 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 you can gain the whole world. So what? Because the day you say goodbye to this world, it all stays here and you go to stand before God. The Bible says, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world? Forfeits its soul. So David, he's in a place. Now David's making a choice too. He's a guy who's chosen to, to trust the Lord, to follow the Lord, to serve the Lord, right? But he's making a choice right now that could very well completely train wreck the work that God wants to do through him because God's called him to be king and he's about to throw and flush all that down the toilet by reacting in the flesh and going and killing Nabal and his whole family. This is the, the risk that David is at when he's in this place of making a choice, right? So, so, so what, what are we going to do here? Well, what I want you to do, and this is key to understanding this whole section of Scripture, okay? This is just what I want to focus on for the remainder of our study here today. Is, is the, the, the key in this is the contrast between David and the contrast between Nabal, Okay? What's the, what's the big contrast between them? I would suggest that you'd find it in verse 17. If you want to look back, 1 Samuel chapter 17, or chapter 25, verse 17, and what you see here is when Nabal's servants are talking to David, what do they say to him? They say he's such a scoundrel that one cannot speak to him. They say, listen, Nabal won't listen. He won't receive any correction. He's just bound to determine what he wants to do. That's the testimony about, about Nabal. Again, Proverbs 12, 15. The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but he who heeds counsel is wise. That's Proverbs 12, 15. Write down Proverbs 12, 15 and maybe take a walk with that this week. Maybe even memorize that scripture. Okay, and, and, and the question for you is, which camp are you in? Do you receive counsel or do you reject counsel? Now, with that in mind, we continue, and I want you to notice what, what Abigail does. Verse 23. 
It says, now when Abigail saw David, she dismounted quickly from the donkey. She fell on her face before David, and she bowed down to the ground. And so she fell at his feet, and she said, on me, my Lord, on me, let this iniquity be. And please let your maidservant speak in your ears and hear the words of your maidservant. Please let not my Lord regard this scoundrel Nabal, for as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name, and folly is with him. In other words, hey, the name Nabal means fool, and he's living up to, you know, his label. He's a fool. Um, But I, your maidservant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. Now therefore, my Lord, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, since the Lord has held you back from coming to bloodshed and from avenging yourself with your own hand, now then, let your enemies and those who seek harm for my Lord be his neighbor. And now this uh, present... Um, which your maidservant has brought to my Lord, let it be given to the young men who follow my Lord. Look, I brought you food, I brought you stuff, you know, give it to your men. Um, Please forgive the trespass of your maidservant. For the Lord will certainly make for my Lord an enduring house because my Lord fights the battles of the Lord and evil is not found in you throughout your days." Yet a man has risen to pursue you and to seek your life. Now, clearly, Abigail knows all about David. She's like, look, you, 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 you're God's guy. Everybody knows it. Saul's chasing you. I know that. But she goes on to say, the life of my Lord shall be bound <coughs> in the bundle of the living with the Lord your God. And the lives of your enemies, he shall sling out as from the pocket of a sling. This is no doubt a play on words and a reference to David and Goliath, which she clearly knows about. What she's telling David is, look, you're God's guy. Saul is going to be, he's not going to be able to get you. Just as God delivered you miraculously through, by your, your fight with, with uh, Goliath, he's going to deliver you miraculously. Now, David, you don't have to take matters into your own hand. You don't have to go kill Nabal. You don't have to react like this because God's been providing for you all along. He's going to provide for you again. She's encouraging him in all of this. And she continues and she says in verse 30, and it shall come to pass. When the Lord is done For my Lord, according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and has appointed you ruler over Israel, that this will be no grief to you nor offense of heart to my Lord, either that you have shed blood without cause or that my Lord has avenged himself. But when the Lord has dealt well with my Lord, then remember your maidservant. In other words, what she's saying is, look, God's going to fulfill his purposes in you if you acknowledge God, if you continue to trust God the way you've been trusting God. And if you kill Nabal and all of his household, all that's going to bring is this grief and shame and it's going to be your constant companion that you you took a a sharp right when God wanted you to continue to go straight. And so now you're going to have all this guilt and shame of something that you did in your flesh rather than acting by faith. Now, what I want you to see is that Abigail does four things. And this is not the main thing, and I'm going to take you to the main thing. But just notice that Abigail, first of all, she writes a wrong, right? She, She brings this food. And you go, well, wait a minute. It wasn't her wrong in the first place. I mean, Nabal was the fool that rejected the people. Yeah, but she recognizes that it's wrong. And when she apologizes to David and says, let it be on me, she's just simply saying, look, I'm going to take responsibility for what my knucklehead husband did. And I'm so sorry that I didn't hear the guys when they came, that I missed the whole thing, but I'm going to write this wrong. 
She does that. Secondly, she requests forgiveness. Hey, would you just please forgive my husband for what he did? And then thirdly, she reminds David of his calling. God, you are better than this. God's got his hand on you. God's called you. And then she asks him, hey, remember your maidservant. But the way, I, I guess I would apply that this way that, you know, sometimes, oftentimes our wives, men, are the ones in our lives going, look, you're about to take a sharp right when you ought to go straight ahead with God. And, and when, when, when you do that, when you honor the Lord and when you trust, would you remember that I told you that, that what I said? Would you remember that I said, not, not, not I told you so, not I told you so, but hey, you know, if, if we get here again, would you, just, would you just remember that I was hearing from God? Would you just remember that, that, I, that, I, that I knew what I was talking about? Maybe you'll listen to me a little bit more. Uh, <clears throat> you can't use that against me, Brenda, later. So... <laughs> Notice how she did it, okay? She lifted David up instead of beating him down, right? She didn't, she didn't go to David being negative. She didn't emphasize how wrong and angry and stupid he was, you know? She didn't do any of that. She just simply reminded David, you know what? You're better than that, David. And God's hand is upon you, and you have his promise and all of this stuff. She just emphasizes his glorious calling, his destiny, the general integrity of his life. Look, you're a man of integrity, And she simply asked him to consider, look, are your current actions consistent with your destiny and integrity? Because you know they're not. And and you're at a crossroads and you've got an opportunity to make a really good choice here. Super wise advice, ladies. Just super wise advice. Rather than, you know, maybe telling your husband how wrong he is, maybe you could just simply say, look... You know, can I remind you of what God's been doing? Can I, can I encourage you in how, you know, God's hand is upon you? Can I, can I encourage you by telling you, look, you're better than this? You know, and, and man, just she, she operates with such diplomacy. But listen, here's the most important thing I want you to notice. I want you to notice how David received it. That's what I want you to notice. That's the key here. No, it's the key to understanding this whole thing. Notice how he receives it. Verse 32 Then David said to Abigail, blessed is the Lord God of Israel who sent you this day to meet me. That's a great start. Sweetie, God has sent you to me today. This is, this is, thank you Lord for for sending you. And blessed is your advice and blessed are you because you've kept me this day from coming to bloodshed and from avenging myself with my own hand. For indeed, as the Lord God of Israel lives, who has kept me back from hurting you, unless you had hurried and come to meet me, surely by morning light, no males would have been left to Nabal. I would have just killed everybody if it hadn't been for you. So David received from her hand what she had brought him, and he said to her, Go up in peace to your house. See, I have have heeded your voice and respected your person. And now Abigail went to Nabal, and there he was holding a feast in his house like the feast of a king, and Nabal's heart was merry within him, for he was very drunk. There's her fool husband just partying down. And notice, it says, therefore she told him nothing, little or much, until morning light. Great discretion, great wisdom. This man, he, he might have been, become violent with her. You know, she, she, she realizes the guy's tanked. You can't deal him with him when he's sober. I'm just not going to say nothing now. So it was in the morning, verse 37, when the wine had gone from Nabal and his wife had told him these things that his heart died within him and he became like a stone. He had a massive stroke is what happens. 
And then it happened after about 10 days of him being in a coma that the Lord struck Nabal and he died. So when David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Blessed be the Lord who has pleaded the cause of my reproach from the hand of Nabal and has kept his servant from evil. For the Lord has returned the wickedness of Nabal on his own head. Right? So what, Dabal is, what David's saying here is he's like spitting on the guy's grave. He's like, good riddance. You had that coming to you. You bought that yourself. And David, it goes on, sent and proposed to Abigail to take her as his wife. He's like, hey, seeing how you're single now and seeing how you're very good looking and, and all, ever the opportunist, you know, he proposes to take her as wife. And when the servants of David had come to Abigail at Carmel, they spoke to her saying, St. David sent us to you to ask you to become his wife. And then she arose, she bowed her face to the earth, and she said, hot diggity dog, I got a godly husband. Well, that's my translation. But she says, here's your maidservant, a servant to wash the feet of the servants of my Lord. And so Abigail arose in haste. She's like, godly man, I'm recently single. As it turns out, yes, my answer is yes. And she rode on a donkey, attended by her five maids, and she followed the messengers of David, and she became his wife. And I wish the chapter ended there. Verse 43, David also took a Hineman of Jezreel, and so both of them were his wives. Not cool, David. Uh, He did this. God allowed it. It's not God's will. God already made that abundantly clear. Kings should not multiply wives to themselves. David did it. But Saul, verse 44, had given Michael, his daughter, David's wife, to Palti, the son of Laish, who was from uh, uh, Galim. Now, most important thing to, to, to consider, we close on this point, take a walk with it, here it is, how did David receive the correction? Because here's what goes through my mind. Abigail, when she talked to David, she showed herself to be what the Bible already called her, very wise woman. She's a, she's, she's a very wise woman. And so I can only imagine the dozens of conversations exactly like this that she's already had with Nabal. Trying to give to him wisdom. Trying to help him. You know, you don't, you, you see somebody's character in crisis. Who they really are is what comes out. So, so I, I know for a fact that Abigail has had dozens of occasions through her marriage with Nabal to be able to do this exact same thing. And, and what, how did Nabal respond? You, you couldn't reason with the guy. He rejected it, wouldn't receive it. David, on the other hand, absolutely listens to it, absolutely heeds it. He absolutely receives it. Husbands, you take note right there. I mean, for, for some of you, that's the price of admission right there. You need to take a walk with that. Again, Proverbs 12, 15, the way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but he who heeds counsel is wise. Hey, three questions for you to jot down. I really ask you to prayerfully take a walk with this week. All right, here's the first question. How do you receive correction? How do you receive correction? Are you more like a Nabal who rejects it and does what's right in your own eyes? Or are you more like David who's going to stop and receive and repent? Second question, how do you deliver correction? 
Are you like Abigail, who, who is encouraging and pointing to the, hey, listen, God's got more for you, and, and here it is? Or are you going to be somebody who's more critical and condemning and so on? So how do you receive correction? How do you deliver correction? Here's the third question, and I close with this. What category of people are you in today? Because there's two types of people, two categories of people, those who are actively perishing, and there's those who are actively being saved. And so I close with that to ask you, what category are you in? Because I believe that maybe there are some here today, you're in the category of people to where if I was to ask you, look, if you were to die today, do you know where you're going to spend eternity? And your answer would be, "I, I don't know. Listen, you can know today. You can be in the category of people who are actively being saved if today you will surrender your life to Jesus Christ. God the Father loves you. He desires that none should perish, but that all should have eternal life.